A brief disclaimer for today's episode, adult themes such as human trafficking, rape, and sexual assault are discussed. Enjoy. Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. On today's episode, I'm excited to share with you yet another example of a guerrilla pastor doing guerrilla ministry here in the Pacific Northwest. This is our third pastor who gives us a real-life example of what subversive ministry looks like. Like our previous examples in Regina and Sean, she embodies one of the tenets we think makes guerrilla pastoring so exciting, the celebration of a diverse praxis. Now, in layman's terms, this simply means that not all pastors do the exact same sorts of ministry. Remembering what we have discussed in previous episodes, not all pastors are middle-aged white men preaching on Sunday mornings in sanctuaries around the world. Some, like Regina, find themselves immersed in their neighborhoods, figuring out ways to better listen, to have a broad kingdom imagination. Others, like Sean, still have a traditional building and worship gathering routine that is rooted in being known for having a benevolent orthodoxy. But on today's episode, we discuss why having a diverse praxis is not only a good idea, but is necessary for the future of church ministry. Join us to hear more on the Guerrilla Pastors Podcast. was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. On this week's episode, we would like to introduce you to yet another example of a Gorilla Pastor doing subversive ministry. 
Now bear in mind, we are giving her this label. This is not a label that she has given herself. Still, this is a label that we give out of respect, not because we want to be intentionally divisive. We see the work that she does as necessary if we are truly to fulfill the church's mission here on earth, to live out that prayer that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So without further ado, here is this week's guest. So I'm Amanda Montgomery, and I've been living in Olympia, Washington for most of my life. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, the greater Olympia area. Um, spent about four years in Bellingham, uh, where I met Michael, my husband. Uh, we've been married 16 years now, um, but we moved back to Olympia right after graduation and then uh, spent a little bit of time in Salem, Oregon when he was in law school. Um, other than that, been, been in the greater Olympia area. Rounding out our trend of guerrilla pastors doing subversive ministry in the great Pacific Northwest, I asked Amanda to unpack a little bit of what she has done historically as a pastor here. When people get to know me right now, I think the first thing that they think of in in most of my circles would be Pastor Amanda. So I think that's become a little bit of my identity. Um, I've been married uh, what, now 16 years, got a kid, two kids actually, Sorry. I've got two kiddos, an 11-year-old and a soon-to-be 8-year-old, um, so that's a little bit about who I am now. Um, it's interesting being married and have a daughter and a son, so people automatically think, oh, look at that perfect family, and she's a Christian, she's a pastor, and probably has always known the Lord, and I think that's so funny because I've always been open with my story. So, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know the Lord. Um, I actually started going to church with a friend in high school, and it actually happens to be the church I now work at. Um, but it wasn't until college when I really had uh, a relationship with the Lord. And I think before that I believed in Him, um, believed in, in God, but uh, that's where I really fell in love with God. Um, and I was 19 years old, and I'd say that that was an absolute life-changing moment. So all of that is, I think, a little bit of who I am as a person. With her history as a pastor in a traditional church, I wanted to tease out a little bit of why Amanda is doing something perceivably subversive now. So, you know, I mentioned that I, you know, came to fall in love with the Lord in, in undergrad. Um, I actually became a marriage and family therapist, did a lot of trauma therapy, found that I really enjoyed working with sexual assault survivors and um, just coming alongside people in the midst of, of their sorrow and helping them see that, um, that there's, there's so much more um, and just empowering them to, to be able to speak their truth. Um, I actually am a rape survivor myself, something that happened in college, and, uh, and that's actually some of what grew my faith in the Lord and realizing that I can talk to the Lord about anything. And so that really, I think, just, just melded so much in even the beginning of my faith. So being a trauma therapist was a big deal. Um, I got called into ministry, and it was so hard to get out of private practice, out of doing trauma therapy. Um, to do ministry, but it, it became a new passion. Um, and I did that for 10 and a half years at Mountain View Church, the church where my friend used to take me when I was uh, in high school. Um, but I never felt like the story about being a, a therapist was over either. They're both important. You know, I became an ordained pastor and everything. Um, about a few years ago, I went back to school 
for my doctorate um, in ministry and innovative leadership of changing cultures. And that is where the Lord really orchestrated the whole story. Me being a, a rape survivor, me being a trauma therapist, and then also being a pastor. And um, I found that I had a, a great passion for um, trafficking survivors and uh, anti-trafficking work, especially sex trafficking work, and what churches need to know about um, how to get involved in the community in ways that don't traumatize people who have already experienced extreme trauma, layers of trauma. And so it's the first time where I thought all of these pieces of my life are coming together in a way that I think I can uh, find, find a bit of a gap that hasn't been talked about um, hasn't really been written about on, on how ch- churches or Christians can really um, get involved in ways that are healthy and uh, not harmful for survivors. Now this is what makes Amanda's story subversive. The topic alone of sex trafficking, of human trafficking, sexual assault, is inherently subversive. It is something that we as the church struggle with discussing. I also wanted to know the practice of something subversive being done by a pastor who has a traditional background in church ministry. Why this subject? Here's what she said. In the last, I'd say about five years, you'll notice that the topic of human trafficking has been coming up more and more in Christian circles, but also in news headlines, Facebook, all sorts of things. which is one of the reasons why I think it's an important thing for Christians to talk about, because we think we know what we're talking about. And survivors are going, no, you've only seen the movies. That is not my lived experience. And so then we go in thinking we want to go and help, and we don't listen to a survivor, and we try to help in ways that may actually be harmful. I wondered what drove us to talk about an issue that we had historically been so bad at talking about. What was the cause for this resurgence in discussing something that made us uncomfortable? Human trafficking, the, the topic of human trafficking seems to have been very popular in the last five to 10 years. And I think we're hearing about it more and more and more, right? Um, rarely is it defined, <laughs> but we do talk about it. And, and it's, it's easy to be outraged about it, right? Um, but it, it is in the Bible. So trafficking happened in the Bible. Um, if we think about our own country's history, slavery is a big part of our, of our history. And um, human trafficking that, that happens in the local comu- community and then also throughout the United States, a lot of it is actually homegrown straight out of our American history. And it's hard for us to begin to understand how trafficking happens in the local community if we're not willing to talk about our own racism, sexism, and some of the other isms. Um, but that's, that's just, that's the truth about it. And so a lot of times there's this outrage, but people don't even know who to be angry about, right? Or, or what to be angry about. So, um, I think that is talked about more, but never fully in depth. To help us understand what we were even talking about, I asked Amanda to define these terms for us. Sexual assault, human trafficking, and so on and so forth. To boil it all the way down, what is the system of trafficking? Right, you've got the you've got a perpetrator 
And, and when I say perpetrator, it's a trafficker and a buyer. It could be a trafficker and or buyer, but there's always a buyer. Um, and then a victim or survivor. And then the community. We don't talk about this, but the community is the, is the, uh, the group that creates the context, right? And we as the community play a huge role in how much we are going to allow um, the crime of trafficking to happen or not, right? Are we going to say it doesn't exist here? We don't want to hear about it. And survivors have to just deal with this nightmare and not, and, and we don't even talk about it. Or are we going to hold, um, perpetrators accountable, right? So the community plays a much bigger role than we think in, in the context where the crime occurs. Um, so what is, what is human trafficking? It really, it's really broadly broken up in two different categories, labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And they do overlap, um, but they are different. Um, Labor trafficking actually happens more often than sex trafficking. But guess who gets the grants, right? The farmers and the the people growing stuff? Well, well, at least for anti-trafficking work. Sex trafficking does because that's the one people get most outraged about, right? But labor trafficking actually statistically happens more often than sex trafficking, but they're both a big, big problem. So I've noticed a lot of sex trafficking um, advocates make sure to also talk about labor trafficking just so that people are aware that it is existing and it's happening in our local communities as well. Um, but what was trafficking? It's um, any time that uh, people are at, where force, fraud, or coercion are used to cause somebody to have to do something where another person benefits for money, right? So um, obviously labor could be um, any form of work where somebody is not being paid or where they have been, um, you know, manipulated into having a certain amount of debt and now they need to work that debt off and there's absolutely no, you know, um, amount of hours or weekends or anything and they're not allowed to, to leave the home or you know, if, if there's a situation where they are here on a work visa and all of a sudden that is taken away from them and, hey, if you if you tell anybody that we're treating you poorly, um, we're just going to have you deported, right? And then next thing you know, really horrible things, very abusive things are happening. So that's uh, somewhat how labor trafficking can happen. Sex trafficking would be any form of um, sexual abuse um, for commercial gain. Um, and so it can be, it doesn't have to be money. It can be money, drugs, food, shelter, anything that's, um, in exchange for any form of sex. Now, if somebody is 18 or I'm sorry, under 18 force, fraud or coercion do not need to be present. So any sexual interaction, um, for any gain is sex trafficking, whether the person feels that they were coerced or not. What does that mean? It means if you think about sex work, um, a person who is a minor cannot be a voluntary sex worker. It is automatically trafficking and all of the laws um, protect them. Hmm. So you can imagine what that would mean for traffickers, buyers, right? Anybody who's, uh, uh, let's say, received money for showing a pornographic image of of a young person is now a trafficker. As you'll hear later in this episode, Amanda has to step away from what would be perceivably considered a traditional pastoral role to do more of this advocacy and ally work of educating churches about what sexual assault and human trafficking even is. 
But my question was why she felt the need to step away from that role. What was it about the work that she was doing that was inherently subversive in its praxis? What I was really looking for answers for was why diverse praxis was so crucial to the Church of Tomorrow. That if we truly want to live out God's will here on earth as it is in heaven, traditional churches needed guerrilla pastors, but guerrilla pastors also needed traditional churches. Here is what Amanda had to say about what she could and could not do in her executive pastoral role in a traditional church. Yeah, you know, that is a great question. As an executive pastor, I was so busy, so busy. Um, I don't know if I were still doing that, if I really had the time to listen to the Lord, quality listening to go, what do you have for me? Um, but with the, with how much research I was doing and the conversations I was in, in interviews with survivors and experts in the field, um, I had time to listen. And so I think it was really a blessing through the, through the schooling to be able to be asking questions I wasn't really asking about myself in the call. Um, so the executive work I think was great. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but it is different. It is, it is busy. It is different. So our church went through a transition um, when our lead retired, and we now have co-lead pastors. Um, there's really no need for an associate to be an executive. They're doing all of that. They're doing a beautiful job. And so in many ways, it freed me up to be able to say, what am I really called to do? And so, you know, local missions is a beautiful thing. And in many ways, what I am now doing overlaps with that. Um, but what I started realizing is so few churches are talking about anti-trafficking work. And even, even when sexual assault is in the Bible, they don't even know how to approach these concepts. Um, that, that kind of leap of faith of coming off of staff mainly is so that I don't have to focus on one local church, but rather have the time to be able to finish, you know, I've, I've written that a book lately. I'd like to get it published, but that takes time right? And going to different churches and saying, I now have the time to be here on a Sunday, get to know who you are, fill in and preach, you know, lead a Bible study, that kind of thing. And that's hard to do when I'm, when I'm in the middle of a, a, a salaried full-time pastoral role. As Amanda evaluated her calling, as time was opened up in her life, she realized that God was calling her to a unique kind of pastoral ministry that could no longer be contained within one singular local church. Theologically, she was talking about touchy subjects, but practically, the work that she was doing was done best if it was not contained to a singular worship gathering in one church in one town in western Washington. More pointedly, if there is a church out there that has a pastor specifically ministering to sex trafficked victims, I am unaware of it. That's not to say it doesn't exist. It's just a position that would be exceedingly rare within our current framework. The more she thought about it, her calling led her to develop a curriculum, to write a book with the expressed interest and desire to partner with any church that would have her. Here's how she thinks this would work. So once the book is published, my hope is that um, it can it can spread further than me. Right now, since it's still in manuscript form, um, it stays with me. 
Um, and so I'm still working with, uh, with churches to allow me to teach the six-week course and using the, the churches who are willing to give me feedback and have it be a focus group. Um, my, my next goal actually is to um, teach the curriculum or facilitate the curriculum with survivors because I want a lot more survivor voices. Um, once something is published, it is out there, and there are critics. Um, it's already a hard idea for me, tough to know that there will be pastors who probably will not like what I have to say. But far more important to me is if a survivor says what you have said is incorrect. And so that is not my lived experience. And so I want to make sure that it's sensitive and, and loving and respectful to survivors. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why Amanda's work is equally necessary but controversial. What she is doing is developing a book and curriculum that focuses on stories in the Bible that we often like to gloss over because they make us uncomfortable, because they depict stories of sexual assault, of human trafficking, of rape and incest. And we don't like to talk about that because on Sunday mornings, we like to feel good and sometimes focus on what makes us happy. And despite the possible headaches of speaking on divisive, controversial issues, Amanda is driven by an experience she had, getting feedback from the work she is doing from a survivor. What I was never able to shake when I was in the program, in the doctoral program, every time I thought, I'm, this is too much, uh, I'm, I'm going to be hated <laughs> for writing these things about sexual assault in the Bible and talking about David and, and many other people um, in the Bible and, and trying to raise awareness there. I kept thinking, what if, what if I <laughs> make some enemies in the church or something like that? And I kept thinking, I kept thinking, you know, do I just need to end? Do I just need to be done with this? Um, one of my friends who was a survivor told me I have been a Christian for four years, is what she told me. Um, and I have been talking about anti-trafficking work for a long time. But for four years, I've been a Christian, and nobody has ever told me my stories in the Bible. And she said, you have to tell people. You have to tell people, and survivors need to know that God cares um, and that our stories are valid, that they are in the Bible. And, uh, and that is, is really what has kept me motivated and, and just silences any of the fears. And really most of the fears are pride. What if they don't like me? Who cares? The Lord told me to do something. That's, what, that's really what it comes down to. If I don't do it, then I'm part of the problem. Part of the problem is the title of this episode, and it gets to the point of why we share Amanda's story. This is a huge issue that has largely been unaddressed within normal evangelical circles. And whenever it is addressed, it is normally associated with some level of victim shaming. Very recently, a pastor at a large church confessed an adulterous affair that he had when he was younger. He seemed to be seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with his congregation. His confession was met with affirmation with applause, with people championing his desire to be honest with what had happened. However, the issue was that he may not have been entirely honest with what had happened so many years ago, because the victim 
came forward to the stage moments later and added a crucial fact to what actually took place. This extramarital relationship had happened when she was a teenager, a minor, which meant that this pastor had committed statutory rape. In the moments following this revelation, the congregation was stunned in silence. And this young woman, with her husband by her side, walked down the aisles between rows of seated congregants, not sure what they were even going to do or how they were going to be received. Because the obvious fear was that they would shame her for speaking truth about a beloved lead pastor that they had all come to adore. This tendency to brush the ugly under the rug is what I wanted to know more about from Amanda. Knowing that she may become a lightning rod for all of our frustrations collectively in the evangelical world we live in, when we talk about things that many don't want to talk about. Our tendency to only talk about nice, happy, good things on Sunday mornings is something we refer to as, we don't talk about Bruno. This phrase, made famous by the Disney movie Encanto, essentially confronts the reality that sometimes we avoid speaking uncomfortable truths. Which is why Amanda is a perfect example of the need for the church to have a diverse praxis. Pastors doing all sorts of uncomfortable roles within the church for the betterment of our overall kingdom imagination. So I asked her what she thought about how this work would be received. She pulled an example from scripture that we often struggle with in the man of King David, someone referred to as a, a man after God's own heart who has an excessively checkered past. Well, let's go there. So let's go back to King David, right? So you brought up to somebody that King David raped Bathsheba and they had a response, right? They had a reaction to that. Um, that's very similar, right? We can talk about um, the problems of rape or sexual assault, power abuse, trafficking. But the moment we start actually bringing up names that have something to do with us, there will be a reaction, right? Um, I think that a lot of times if we're going to relate to anybody, we'd like to relate to the victim or the survivor. Um, but especially churches are going to have to be open to understanding that there are victims and perpetrators in the local community, right? People are being trafficked. They're being trafficked by other people. And so in order for us to understand how trafficking happens, we have to be open to the whole of the story. And that is where the extreme discomfort starts to come in. We have to be convicted. We would like to believe it's a foreign trafficking ring, and we don't want to name any countries. We just believe there's some boogeyman out there stealing people. Not here, though. It, it can happen, and so I'm not taking away from that story. But here in the local community, the perpetrators are here, and we have to be able to talk about that, especially when we're, we're talking about you know, what are ways to keep you know, churches safer. Um, a lot of times we want to keep the, you know, the quote-unquote bad guys out, right? But if we don't even know well, yeah, what, <laughs> what we're looking for, Christians are going to feel more comfortable in a very uncomfortable conversation when when the Bible has already paved the way. And so if we can look at Scripture and say, sure enough, maybe I had not seen it before, but 
yes, this is definitely a pattern of abuse. And if the Lord saw it fit to put it in there for thousands of years, then we can also talk about it today. And so it already paves the way for an invitation to be honest about what we're reading. If we also believe that um, the only people who are perpetrating, I know this is kind of a, this is an edgy thing to say, (laughs) but the only people who are perpetrating must be monsters. Then we're also silencing anybody who desperately needs help, right? And saying, do not tell us or we're going to crucify you, Mm. right? And so now you've got huge problems. You've got people who, you know, when when they're doing research on people who have major pornography problems, um, or sex offenders, right, that, that have either, you know, gotten into voyeurism, exhibitionism, or um, anything else. Um, there's an extreme amount of depression, shame, suicidality. Where are they going to go to get help? Right? A community member? A church? Pastor? Who are they going to talk to? Um, so we as Christians are supposed to not believe in co- condemnation, but rather conviction, Right. So again, we'll get back to our our guide of the day. Right. King David. Right. So can we hold that tension to be able to truly believe that he is a man after God's own heart and a perpetrator? Can we hold both of those? Can we realize that there's a timeline involved? And it wasn't the day that he raped Bathsheba that God goes, you're a man after my own heart. Or was it a long time later, and uh, Nathan, the prophet, has already called him out, right? He's one of my favorite people in the whole Bible. Nathan was brave, mm-hmm. right? Um, we see a complete conviction and, and a, um, a very repentant David in the moment. We see a David who suffered um, and, and is a changed person. And then you hear about a man after God's own heart, right? So um, can, we, can we hold that in the church? Or do we say the moment that you have become an abuser, you, you know, God may not condemn you, but we will. How is that helpful in the, in the topic of trafficking prevention and awareness? Still, I wanted to dive deeper into this conundrum, the paradox of being expected to only preach on nice things that make people happy so that they continue to come to a church on a Sunday morning and tithe so that the church can be funded. I doubled down on my question of the pressure pastors feel to preach perfect sermons that don't ruffle feathers. And this is her response. There's a whole flood of messages that I would love to share. Some of them will probably not be able to be shared from the pulpit because they're not what I think you're saying, Sunday morning messages, right? Can I talk about the, the concubine that is, you know, suffers gang rape and is cut into pieces? It's in judges, right? Who preaches about that on Sunday morning? Most people have never preached that on a Sunday morning. Some may risk that chance of doing it, you know, talking about it on a Sunday school, in a Sunday school class, maybe, right? But that story is there for us to teach. Um, so yes, I think that there are things that we can talk about and that need to be discussed, um, that, that don't usually fit the, the Sunday morning customs, trying to deliver the perfect sermon and not make everybody mad that those are two different goals, (laughs) right? Um, and the idea of one human being trying to meet the needs of however big the congregation is, right? 20 people, 50 
5,000. It doesn't matter. Um, we have a Holy Spirit who is uh, he's so big and so old, <laughs> ancient, right? Um, ancient of days, but so wise. And we think that one person in their lived experience and their perspective can, can be able to speak life into all of these people who also have their lived experience, I think can become problematic. And so instead, if we say, and, and I'm okay with traditional ministry, as long as the people who are given the gift to be able to speak in front of a congregation, hold that loosely, right? And realize it is always the Holy Spirit um, that, that's, that is, is truly the, the leader of that church, right? And then realizing that we're all on the same team. And so holding loosely the congregants, right? And so we talk about the good shepherd. And in many ways, I think we as leaders, as pastors, also see ourselves as shepherds, but we are not the, <laughs> the shepherd. And so to be able to realize that we are, we are um, there to do our role, but we're there to do it alongside and, and in community. Um, if we were to allow everyone to be able to live into their strengths, live into the gifts that they have and the talents and, um, and allow that fiery spirit to be able to do whatever the Lord sees fit, I think we would be living in a, a very exciting time. I then asked Amanda what she would do if she received pushback, if churches or even our denomination did not publicly or financially sanction the work that she was doing. Here's what she said. In many ways, what I received my doctoral degree in is something I did not personally live. I, I didn't, I'm not a trafficking survivor, so I'm an ally. Um, if I never made a dime by trying to help the community raise awareness and, and churches become a safer space for survivors, um, and those things happened, but there was no financial gain, that is okay, right? Um, a lot of times the, the concern that I see actually is that allies are in um, spaces of leadership and they're getting funds when survivors are the ones who've lived out these, these awful experiences. And a lot of times, they're, well, they are the experts, but they're not receiving any compensation when their story is being used in people's books in, um, in seminars and different things like that. So, um, I'm definitely not in it for the money, <laughs> but they're really just trying to, to pave the way so that, um, just to be frank, Christians don't harm survivors. A common thread in many of our interviewed stories of guerrilla pastors doing subversive ministry throughout the Pacific Northwest is this issue of validation through financial support. What I was pointedly asking her was whether this work was going to be done with or without being sanctioned by the institution. The reality of pastoral ministry in America today, within this evangelical American machine, is that we value pastoral ministry by paying for it. That regardless of the obvious necessity for Amanda's work, she might not find that institutional support. It was clear to me that she was doing this for all the right reasons, so this was in no way a question of her motivation, but it was instead a question that was a thoughtful reflection 
on the state of affairs within the Church of America. This drives to the heart of why diverse praxis is such a poignant topic of conversation for us to be having here and now. This work is necessary, but we need trailblazers like Amanda who are willing to do the work regardless of any sort of monetary backing. But this brings up a myriad of issues about the economics of the local church and how many pastors do not have the flexibility to do this necessary work because they depend on the paychecks they get to support their families. This is a subject that we long to talk about in a future episode. So since we see her work as valuable, we asked her to tell us more about it. What did this look like practically applied? What did diverse praxis look like to be celebrated? How can a traditional church partner with a subversive pastor, a pastor doing guerrilla ministry today? Building on her intentions to publish a book and curriculum that unpacks these examples of sexual assault and human trafficking within the Bible, I wanted to know big picture. What did Amanda see the future of her ministry looking like? So I'm really, really bad at telling the future. But today, what I picture <laughs> the the future being um, is get, you know getting my book that I've recently written published, that's my hope, um, continuing to go to uh, local churches in the greater Olympia area, and then also other churches in Nazarene um, on our district, and, and just helping them understand how trafficking happens in, in the Northwest, in the local area, um, and helping them learn how to partner with anti-trafficking organizations that do a good job, um, and who are um, survivor-informed or survivor-led. Um, so all of that, and then I have a, about a book or two <laughs> that are in, they're still in my head and I want time to be able to write them out. Hopefully get those published. Um, the next step that I see, um, would be creating some curriculum and then starting to talk to universities, um, seminaries, and then also mental health field, both, both of those programs, because as a sexual assault, um, uh, therapist, as a marriage and family therapist who mainly worked with sexual assault survivors, I was never trained in trafficking prevention and awareness. Now that was 12 years ago, um, but I don't know if that's part of the curriculum or not. So I would love to be able to create um, a semester length anti-trafficking continuing ed for therapists and pastors, and then also one for the accredited programs as well, and then just start reaching out to several universities and teaching my course. So that's, that's my long-term goal. While this isn't the entire interview with Amanda, I know that time permitting allows us to only share so much. So as a result, we have a second part of her interview, coupled with my co-host's reaction to what this diverse praxis looks like embodied in Amanda's story. This will be on our next episode. And if you needed the reminder, our episodes release every other week currently. With that being said, I would like to wrap up today's episode by saying thank you for listening. If you would be so inclined, we would appreciate any ratings or reviews you might give us as they help others find our podcast. Join us on our next episode as we further unpack what it looks like to celebrate a diverse praxis in light of the story of Amanda Montgomery. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I am Josiah, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. <laughs>